0: July 28, 1934. This is the National Broadcasting Corporation with an update on the Explorer High Altitude Balloon Launch from the Bowl in Rapid City, South Dakota. Seven hours ago, we brought you the live coverage of the launch event watched on the ground by over 30,000 people. Our experts for the National Geographic Society say the balloon should be nearly reaching its record-setting goal altitude. We're past 60,000. If we push it, we can make the record. Will, we've got a problem. What kind of problem? Altitude's dropping. What's happening? We've got terrors forming in the bottom of the envelope. We need to ready our parachutes if we don't want to end up like the Russians. I'll start getting the equipment ready. We have to save as much of this data as we can. Just make sure you leave enough time for us to save ourselves too, Al. Then help me get these film canisters unloaded. We were so close. So close! Close. On this episode, casualties mount in the early space race as the United States and other nations struggle to regain the record for highest altitude reached from the fledgling Soviet Union. But the US finds a secret weapon, a canyon in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And then, the Empire of the Rising Sun attempts to rain fire and death from above on the Sioux Empire. Sioux Empire, we live here, but what do we really know about this land we call home? Many of us were born here, writing our story. Many are new here, with new parts of the story to tell. And some of us were always here, but their stories, while not always told, have never been forgotten. This is the Sioux Empire Podcast. Stories about the Sioux Empire you've never heard in the zoo empire. started a little business this month if you like the podcast please tell your friends and family about this podcast if you really like us consider supporting us on patreon and getting access to sweet behind the scenes show notes photos and more patrons like kristen i and anchor supporter deb m help make this podcast possible thank you The race for space started long before the first Russian satellite entered the outer atmosphere in 1959, or before the United States placed the first footstep on the moon in 1969. In the early 1930s, the race for space was global. Entrepreneurs, private citizens, and governments were all vying to be the first to fly the highest in the atmosphere. Many succeeded. Some perished. All who ventured aloft were voyagers of the same idea, to fly the highest, and to use the data in order to study what could not be seen or touched in the stratosphere. These people were visionaries and explorers, pilots and scientists, and men of means and of press who had the vision that space was the final frontier. Gas ballooning to the atmosphere was always a dream for many early aeronauts. On July 18, 1803, French physicist Inet Gaspard Robertson and music teacher Loheste launched their gas balloon in Hamburg, Germany, to 23,900 feet, or 7,285 meters. In 1939, English aeronaut Charles Green and astronomer Spencer Rush rose to 25,918 feet. On September 5, 1862, English aeronaut Henry Tracy Coxwell and English meteorologist Dr. James Glashier rose to 39,000 feet before losing consciousness due to low air pressure and cold temperatures of minus 11 degrees Celsius or 12 degrees Fahrenheit. Dr. Glassier became insensible due to the lack of oxygen during the flight, and Mr. Coxwell was unable to use his frostbitten hands to open the gas valve, which he then had to use his teeth to open in order to descend, although rapidly, back to Earth. In April of 1875, Frenchmen Gaston Trissadier and Joseph Corse Spinelli and Theodore Civil reached 28,215 feet. Both of his companions died from breathing the thin air. Tassender survived, but became deaf. On March 9, 1927, Captain Hawthorne C. Gray of the U.S. Army Air Corps ventured aloft in his 7,000 cubic foot single-ply rubberized single envelope. He set the first U.S. altitude record at 29,000 feet on the first of his three flights into the stratosphere. On May 4th, 1927, he attempted the altitude of 42,470 feet on his second flight, but this was not officially recorded since he had to parachute from his gondola to save himself. On November 27th, 1927, Captain Gray's third attempt into the atmosphere gave him the opportunity to test high-altitude clothing, oxygen system, and instruments, as well as set a new record. He reached 42,000 feet again, but then ran out of oxygen on the descent. He arrived on the ground with his balloon, but he was dead. It was the last high-altitude flight in an open basket. This led to the enclosed gondola introduced by leading cosmic ray investigator, Swiss professor Auguste Picard. Professor Picard designed a gondola sphere that weighed around 300 pounds and was 82 inches in diameter. The gondola was built to keep two people alive for up to 10 hours at 40,000 feet. The apparatus was designed to release pure oxygen into the cabin while scrubbing and recirculating cabin air by filtering it through alkali. This was fashioned after a German invention. Professor Picard also solved the problem of the oxygen leaking while expanding during descent. He surmised an envelope five times larger which would allow the expanding gases to remain inside the envelope as it reached the stratosphere. This would then allow two aeronauts to return safely to earth as the gas cooled at night. He then built a 500,000 cubic foot hydrogen-filled envelope. This envelope allowed the lifting gases to remain inside the balloon envelope as it expanded, giving the balloon enough buoyancy to safely return to earth as the gas cooled at night. On May 27, 1931, the Swiss professor flew his pressurized capsule and the 494,400 cubic foot envelope from Augsburg, Germany, and reached a world record altitude of 51,783 feet. Unfortunately, their balloon landed on a glacier where it was left for nearly a year. In 1932, Professor Augusta Picard and Max Kosnius reached 53,152 feet into the stratosphere. Now the race for space began to heat up as each country had a viable vehicle to travel to the stars. Yes, it was still a risk, but the success ratio was much higher now with the invention of the enclosed gondola. The Soviet Union invested the most time and energy to the discovery of the stratosphere, since the idea first arose in 1932 by Vladimir Chevensky. On September 24, 1933, the Soviet Union, inspired by Professor Picard's success and under the command of Gregory Pokolov, widely publicized the maiden flight of the USSR-1, which ended in failure. First, the bottom of the envelope twisted itself with ropes during inflation. A volunteer untied the knots and the balloon was cleared for launch. However, it failed to lift due to the moisture buildup in the foggy weather. On September 30, 1933, the Soviet Union launched USSR-1 once again. This was the largest balloon built to date with 860,000 cubic feet. A three-man crew reached an unofficial record of 62,336 feet. Later that same day, the Oskalefhem-1, was being prepared for launch. However, strong winds at the time of the launch canceled the second balloon launch, which was rescheduled for January of that year. On November 20, 1933, the U.S. team flew the Century of Progress, which was a 60,000 cubic foot hydrogen-filled balloon built by the Goodyear Company to an altitude of 61,237 feet. Rumor was that Joseph Stalin was apparently very irked by this achievement, and allegedly would order three Soviet balloonists into the air and to their deaths in an attempt to break the American-held record. And, on January 30, 1934, a Soviet Union three-man team launched their balloon, the Oskalevhem-1, and attained an altitude of 72,200 feet, beating all the high-altitude records. Unfortunately, the balloon lost buoyancy during its descent, and plunged into an uncontrollable fall and disintegrated into the lower atmosphere. The three crew members, probably incapacitated by the high g-forces produced by the rapidly rotating gondola, failed to parachute to safety and were killed when the capsule impacted with the earth. In May of 1934, USSR 2 with a 984,000 cubic foot envelope, was designed for a two-man team. The envelope was changed to a parachute-grade silk. On September 4th and 5th of 1934, the filling of the hydrogen into the silk fabric caused a spark and an explosion, and a fire commenced. No fatalities resulted from the event, but it would shelve the project indefinitely for this type of fabric. In 1935, the USSR-1 Biz was built to replace the failed flight of Ogashev-1, because the lines failed at the altitude where parachuting to safety was not feasible. The gondola was engineered to have more stringent safety precautions. The designers focused on assuring crew survival above 26,000 feet. USSR-1 was refitted with a new suspension with a quick-release latch that enabled instant separation of the gondola from the envelope and a large parachute capable of stabilizing the fall at safe speeds. This upgraded aircraft was renamed the USSR-1 Biz with military flight commander Christian Vili and co-pilot Yuri Polinsky and science officer professor Alex Vertigo, the balloon launched on June 26, 1935 and flew to an altitude of 52,493 feet. A faulty valve produced an unexpected descent. When the vertical speed passed the safety limits, producing the likelihood of a crash similar to the one of the previous balloon, ballast was jettisoned in order to slow the rate of descent. In the end, the commander ordered the other two pilots to parachute to safety, and he stayed on board to lighten the load and brought the balloon to a soft and safe landing. The next development by the Russian team was the USSR-3, which had an envelope of 515,000 cubic feet. By now, it was noted that weather played a significant part in the time of launch. Because the lines were tangling with the balloon envelope prior to launch, the designers implemented a double launch sequence, the first test pilot was killed, and it was later discovered that this would be a traditional problem with the subsequent f- balloon flights. On September 18, 1937, a newly redesigned USSR 3 would be launched. However, it would meet the same fate. Plagued with line entanglement issues, the ground team failed to release the balloon from the safety net. Two cloud-hopper balloonists rose on the lines to untangle the net and at 3,937 feet, the valve opened up once again, causing the balloon to crash into the woods nearby. The three-man crew survived with serious injuries. It came as a surprise after Prok was planning on future record flights for May of 1939 that he instead fatally shot himself. <music> 1933, Goodyear and Dow Chemical sponsored Dr. Jean Picard's Century of Progress gas balloon design. The new magnesium and aluminum alloy made the gondola lighter, but fragile. Now the U.S. was back in the race. However, due to Picard's lack of a pilot's certificate, Lieutenant Commander G.W. Seidel of the United States Navy was scheduled to operate the aircraft into the stratosphere, with Dr. Jean Picard as science officer. As with all races, this one was filled with political agendas, and since Settle was the U.S. Navy inspector to, for Goodyear, rumor is that he convinced the board to dispense with Dr. Picard on the flight and to fly alone. As history has shown us, a gas balloon of this magnitude, with the instrumental and in scientific exploration, is a two-person endeavor. With seven hours of ceremonies and parades presented by the Continental Commission and the U.S. Navy for the crowd of 40,000, Lieutenant Commander Settle launched the 15 stories tall, 600,000 cubic foot balloon Century of Progress from Soldier Field in Chicago, Illinois, on dawn of August 4th and 5th, 1933. This would be the first of three stratospheric attempts by the Century of Progress. Ten minutes into the flight, a leaky valve began to release hydrogen from the envelope. This was due in part to issues pertaining to the weight of the valve cord at the bottom of the fabric. After a short flight of only 5,000 feet, Lieutenant Commander Settle landed in a local rail yard and was surrounded by a crowd of hundreds. It is reported that the large, riotous crowd hampered with authorities with safeguarding the aircraft and that one bystander was critically injured. This included people smoking on and around the partially filled hydrogen gas bag. With a call from the U.S. Navy to retrieve their balloon, the Picards assembled a group to pack the balloon and gondola and transfer them to a local auditorium to dry. Later, Lieutenant Commander Settle would be loaned the use of Picard's Century of Progress for his second attempt at breaking the altitude record. On November 20, 1933, Lieutenant Commander Settle from the U.S. Navy and Major Chester Fordnoy from the U.S. Marine Corps flew the Century of Progress to an altitude of 61,237 feet. Headed once again by Dr. Jean Picard, it carried two instruments to measure how gas conducted cosmic rays, a cosmic ray telescope, a polariscope to study the polarization of light at high altitudes, fruit flies to study genetic mutations for the United States Department of Agriculture, and an infrared camera to study the ozone layer. It was understood by many that Commander Settle was highly motivated to bring the world record back to U.S. soil and push the limits in order to achieve his goal. Unfortunately, ballast was deployed and most of the scientific instruments ended up in the Delaware River in order to control the rate of descent. The Century of Progress once again returned to the Picards, who flew it a third time and a final voyage. On October 23, 1934, a crowd of 45,000 watched the Century of Progress take its third and final voyage out of Dearborn, Michigan to the stratosphere with husband and wife team of Jean Picard and Dr. Jeanette Picard. Jeanette, who was the first licensed female NNA, National Aeronautics Association, balloon pilot in the United States. Since Jean Picard was without his pilot certificate, Jeanette received training from Ed Hill and became the first woman to pilot into the stratosphere. Together, they reached a height of 57,579 feet. After noticing that the oxygen failed to vaporize on descent after the cabin doors were opened from previous flights, Dr. Jean Picard created a liquid oxygen converter. This oxygen system was used on World War II aircraft. He also developed frost-free windows for flight, which were later used by the United States Navy and the U.S. Air Force in the B-24 Liberator and the B-26 Marauder. Gene also discovered a use for blasting caps and TNT for releasing a balloon at launch and for a remote release of external ballast from the inside of a sealed cabin. This was the first use of pyrotechnics from a remote-controlled actuating device in an aircraft, an unpopular, however, revolutionary idea at the time. The instruments lost in the Delaware River were replaced so that scientific studies could be conducted, including studies of atmospheric physics in conjunction with cosmic rays by Dr. Robert Milliken. And so at long last, our story starts to involve South Dakota. Thank you for riding with me through that intro. On October 23rd, 1924, Captain Albert W. Stevens, a U.S. Army Air Corps photographer and discoverer, penned a six-page proposal to his supporters during a trip to northern Brazil as part of the Alexander Hamilton Rice Expedition. It was the first expedition to use aerial photography and shortwave radio for mapping. While under the directorship of Wright, the Institute for Geographic Exploration became a major center for science and photogrammetry, or map making by aerial photography. Stevens wrote his proposal from a tent along the Rio Branco near Bonavista, while surveying the Rio Negro as well as the Rio Branco, In his proposal, Stevens wrote that the United States Army Air Corps could be the first to attain the privilege of reaching the highest altitude to the stratosphere. The flight mission was to collect scientific data on composition of air, wind direction, velocity, temperature, pressure, cosmic rays, solar spectrum, and the effects of altitude on radio transmissions. And the U.S. Army Air Corps agreed but refused to fund the project. Who would be able to fund such a mission? So in response, Captain Stevens contacted the National Geographic Society and requested that if they could fund the balloon, gondola, instruments, and fuel, the U.S. Army Air Corps would provide the manpower. They in turn agreed, and so the NGS teamed up with the USAAC and began the journey. But the journey was not for the lighthearted, and it was a dangerous mission. Major William Kepner and Captain Orville Anderson, experienced balloonists, were in charge of locating a suitable launch site. According to Kepner, an ideal site would be a crater or canyon, a clear, grassy valley encircled with rocky ridges high enough to shield the balloon from any and all wind. Ideally, the launch site would have access to high-voltage electric line, road, and rail access, and, of course, a trout stream. Kepner and Anderson eventually located their dream canyon near Rapid City, South Dakota. City officials, fascinated by the expected publicity of the campaign, agreed to build a road and an electric line. Anderson directed construction of a temporary village housing over 100 people with the help of the South Dakota National Guard and the Army's 4th Cavalry Regiment. The central pad, 200 feet in diameter, was cushioned with sawdust to protect the fabric of the balloon as it was spread out on the ground prior to inflation. The first flight out of the Strato was a small gas balloon test flight by Kepner and Anderson on July 7, 1934. Explorer lifted off at 6.45 a.m. July 26, 1934, in an event that was broadcast over the radio and watched by 30,000 spectators on the site. After seven hours in flight, the pilots noticed holes in the bottom of their torn gas bag, and quickly losing gas, the balloon plunged into an uncontrollable dive. This gas bag disintegrated as the balloon picked up vertical speed. At 5,000 feet, the remaining hydrogen exploded, sending the gondola into a free fall. According to Ryan, the pilots managed to bail out after the explosion. Kepner had bailed out at an f- altitude of barely 500 feet, according to Schuyler, who bailed out before the explosion. Explorer 1 crashed, destroying most of the remaining equipment on board, though some equipment had been parachuted to safety in order to save the data from space while Major William Kepner, Captain Orville Anderson, and Captain Albert Stevens parachuted to safety. It would later be determined that the Explorer missed the world record by 624 feet that day. An extensive inquiry was conducted after the crash of Explorer 1 to determine what was needed for a successful mission on the next balloon. It was concluded that the balloon envelope needed to be larger, and that the gas needed to be non-combustible. The porthole of the gondola needed to be larger, and the payload needed to be lighter. The accident was linked to folds in the balloon's fabric that were put under extreme pressure as the balloon expanded in the stratosphere, so an additional 700,000 cubic feet was added to the th- already 3 million cubic feet of balloon on Explorer 2. Helium was traded for hydrogen, and instead of a three-man crew, Captain Orville Anderson and Albert Stevens were awarded positions of pilot and science officer, while Captain Randolph Williams would be assigned to ground operations. On July 11, 1935, the new improved Explorer II was ready for flight after the night of inflating helium into the 3,700,000 cubic foot balloon. Unfortunately, a seam pulled apart and the flight was aborted. Over the next several months, repairs were made, and climatological data from the expected flight region determined that the next attempt for a balloon launch should be in October. However, the weather window was not open until November 11th, 1935, in which the world altitude record of 72,395 feet was achieved. Space was finally conquered by Stevens and Anderson in this last mission to the stars. From the Explorer mission, the first photograph of the stratosphere was taken almost 14 miles above the Earth's surface. The flight mission collected scientific data on the composition of the air, wind direction, velocity, temperature, pressure, cosmic rays, solar spectrum, and the effects of altitude on radio transmissions. This data produced advances in the use of magnesium alloys, pressurization techniques, and personal equipment such as a heated flying suit. The expedition learned much about the concentration of ozone and the ability for living organisms to survive exposure to stratospheric conditions and to unexpected changes in the radio waves that we used to communicate with others. All of this later played an important part in giving American airmen superiority in the skies over Berlin and Tokyo. On October 14th, 1938, the Star of Poland was preparing to fly with a Polish crew and a captain whose name I'm not even going to try and say. Technical assistance was provided by Captain Albert Stevens of the successful Explorer Expedition, who traveled to Poland... And professor august picard of switzerland weather played a disastrous part with the high winds and several attempts to fly around 4 a.m the hydrogen-filled balloon burst into flames from witnessed spark on the top of the stiff fabric that, that was buffeted by winds fortunately the balloon caught fire less than 100 feet above the ground and the gondola and persons on board were spared this gave polish scientists hope at one last attempt to fly into the stratosphere in september of 1939 the polish team tried to make one last flight to the stars Due to the explosive nature of hydrogen, the Americans supplied the Polish team with helium. However, the German and Soviet attack on Poland made these final flights impossible as World War II was just beginning. The final gas balloon attempt took place in June of 1940. The Soviet Union improved on safety devices and attempted once again to launch a man into high altitude. However, the program was marked with accidents and failures and terminated before the M II launch failure and so the race for space was officially ended. Thanks to the work of Captain Stevens for proposing and organizing a mission to space in collaboration with the Army Air Corps and the National Geographic Society, his pursuit to the rise of man's highest altitude was achieved along with Captain Armstrong, Captain Williams, Major Kepner, who commanded the flight of Explorer One and the host of almost 3,000 scientists, crew, and volunteers who worked on this project? They challenged the skies and succeeded. And after a year-long tour and numerous medals and honors to the three aeronauts, World War II broke out, and their accomplishments were quickly forgotten by many. On September 24, 2010, after months of preparation and special invitation by local landowners. The 75th anniversary was celebrated at the Strato Bowl by 10 balloons piloted and crewed by a small group of hot-air balloonists from six states who flew in order to recognize the tremendous achievement into the heavens. With surviving members who witnessed the Explorer mission present, the surrounding public as well as local media, the balloons lifted gently off the Stratobowl floor.
1: We were honored to fly from this historic site, which to some was a great accomplishment, to others, a chance to be a part of history. And to me, a chance to feel closer to a grandfather I never met. A grandfather who stood in the bowl helping with the inflation of Explorer 1 and Explorer 2, felt the lead pellets as they cascaded from the balloon and rose into the dawn sky, and who also became a part of history himself. We take the time now, to honor the Explorer Expedition of 1935 and their strength and accomplishment on November 11, 2010, on this, their 75th anniversary. Thanks to all who made my dream come true.
0: the Japanese balloon bombs. In late 1944, reports of mysterious slow-moving flying objects began cropping up across the Pacific Northwest in the United States. The sightings were often followed by a whistling sound or unexplained explosions. It puzzled local authorities, who initially feared that the Japanese aircraft were somehow reaching the United States and dropping bombs with parachutes. As to why the Japanese would be targeting random forests, it was not known. It is not until one of these unusual objects came crashing down intact that the U.S. military finally understood what they were up against. The device was a new kind of weapon, sent all the way from Japan. It was a discovery so startling at the time that the U.S. government asked American news not to report it to the public. The end of the war was increasingly tough on the Japanese, partially for its Imperial Navy. The morale among citizens was exceptionally low following the American Doolittle Raid and an attack on Tokyo in April of 1942. Although American bombers had done little damage to the city, it had left citizens feeling vulnerable. The Imperial Navy decided to explore balloon bombs, charging Technical Lieutenant Commander Kayoshi Tanaka to work on the prototype under the Army's 9th Military Technical Research Institute. Although materials were scarce, he managed to design a working model. By 1944, he had constructed a 29-foot balloon with rubber-covered panels of silk. The fabric let the balloon be flexible enough to withstand the expansion and contraction led by the varying air pressure while making it durable and leak-proof. The Imperial Army, meantime, separately developed another balloon, which would be more commonly used. It was made of paper, which made it much less expensive, although it was much less reliable as well. Even so, the paper balloons could carry some more weight and measured 32.8 feet in diameter. To keep the paper together, the makers used an adhesive made from the roots of Armus. The balloons were made waterproof through a lacquer-like coat made of fermented green persimmons. Tanaka's rubber balloons were only used to collect data. 34 were sent, and none were with explosives. Only the paper balloons were used to bomb the enemy. Four incendiary bombs of modest size would be placed inside of each paper balloon along with a 33-pound anti-personnel cluster munition bomb, which would instantly explode upon arrival, releasing shrapnel with a reach of up to 300 feet. The idea of using balloon bombs can be traced back to the occupation of Manchuria in the 1930s. During the conflict, the Japanese wanted to attack Siberian Soviets on the other side of the Amru River. They planned on doing so by sending balloons with propaganda leaflets, but the idea was never executed, but Japan's military scientists still collected data and made valuable assessments about flying balloons over long distances. Later on, the Japanese would reassess the technique when considering options for special troops transport and for bombing. The new version was used almost exclusively to bomb the United States in the 1940s, to get them across the ocean. To get them across the ocean, the Japanese relied on a brisk stream of air that moves eastward over the Pacific Ocean. In the early 1940s, the Japanese bought daily weather maps and reports from the U.S. Weather Bureau following the discovery of the Pacific Ocean jet stream, which traveled at a high altitude. Thanks to the jet stream, it was possible for a balloon launch from Japan to fly 30,000 feet above the ocean for a couple of days and then land in America. The US would not learn about the jet stream until it began long-distance bombing campaigns towards the end of the war. Starting in 1942, the Japanese began toying with the idea of using balloon bombs on the island of Guadalcanal. One proposal was to attach grenades to piano wire held in the air by the balloons so that US marine fighter aircraft would crash into them as they took off from the fields on the island. American dominance over the island in September forced them to reconsider. The Japanese then decided on a transcontinental bombing route with two possible outcomes. One likely possibility was that the incendiary bombs would cause fires in the forests and areas of the Northwest. It was hoped that the explosions would bring military and civilian resources to America, as well as creating millions of dollars in damage. The other possible outcome was the psychological distress to the United States. They named the Project Fugo which James M. Powell describes in his 2003 issue of, World, of the World War II Journal, saying,
2: Called for sending bomb-carrying balloons from Japan to set fire to the vast forests of America, in particular, those of the Pacific Northwest. It was hoped that the fires would create havoc, dampen American morale, and disrupt the U.S. war effort.
0: Paper balloons also carried sensors and triggering devices and other mechanisms to ensure that the detonations would only take place on the American continent. On November 3, 1944, the Japanese sent the first 6,000 balloon bombs across the ocean. While the weather was not ideal for starting a forest fire, they hoped the public's reaction would guide the continuation of the bombing. The Japanese hoped that panic would demoralize the citizens of the United States while inspiring their own soldiers. Estimates from expert historians and geographers have concluded that it took anywhere from 30 to 60 hours for a balloon bomb to travel from Japan to the West Coast. One of the main downsides to this contraption was the lack of any certainty over the speed and the target by the variation in the atmospheric conditions. Geosciences expert Dave Teweski from Hamilton College in New York expressed that,
2: An awful lot of this was just put them up there and see what
0: happens. On the other hand, this provided apparent benefit for the Japanese who were keeping their soldiers out of harm's way. When the balloons started raining on America, those who encountered the explosions had no clue where they'd come from. Through forensic geology, the American military was able to identify Japan as the culprit. It has been claimed that the sand from one of the contraptions helped the U.S. Geological Survey assess their origin. Airborne balloon bombs began showing up on the western side of America at the end of 1944. The first attack was discovered on November 3rd near the coast of San Pedro, California. It was intercepted by a U.S. Navy patrol. The device was one of the rubber Tanaka balloons with a radio transmitter. The first recorded explosion took place on December 6th on the outskirts of Thermopolis, Wyoming. A local newspaper reported on it believing the bomb had been dropped from a plane because the witnesses reported observing a parachute with flares right before the explosion. The local authorities did not search for a parachute since they believed the witnesses had only seen a landing flare. Allegedly, there were no injuries. Reports of the explosion primarily came from coal mine workers in the area. Only a couple of days later, a bomb was found in Caspell, Montana. The local sheriff's department assessed the device, a paper balloon with a gas relief valve, and an incendiary bomb. Authorities confiscated the equipment for review. The FBI, the Army, and the Navy all had a chance to inspect the device, concluding that it came from Japan, but still unsure how it arrived in the U.S. One of the balloons that managed to cause some harm fell on a power line in Washington State. It cut off the energy to the Hartford Engineering Works, where the government was manufacturing plutonium for nukes. After the war ended, reported sightings and incidents of balloon bombs kept popping up. Seven Nebraska towns received at least one of them, and one was found near Detroit and another by Grand Rapids. Reports of these in the national media gave some folks in the Watertown area war jitters, and as such, the following was reported in the Argus Leader the day after Christmas, 1944.
2: Safety first. FBI races to investigate alleged balloon bomb near Watertown. Distrust of the treacherous Japanese, a case of jumpy war nerves, and a floating balloon added up to a wild goose chase for local FBI officers over the weekend. The balloon was sighted early one morning by a farmer living near South Shore. His thoughts raced back to the news story the previous week. He was sure the balloon carried some infamous inflammatory weapon loosened by the enemy. The farmer carefully avoided approaching the dastardly invention, heading for the nearest telephone. He notified Sheriff Andy Lynch of Watertown, who in turn called Warner Haney, agent in charge of the FBI there. In a few moments, FBI agents were speeding to the scene, Christmas preparations forgotten. The balloon? It was one of those small white variety loosened daily by Civic Aeronautics Administration to test wind direction and velocity.
0: But South Dakota didn't have to wait long for the real thing. On Friday, March 20th, 1945, at 6.50 p.m., Mountain War Time, a large balloon descended on the Cheyenne Indian Reservation in South Dakota. The Silvery Sphere blown gently by a slight northeasterly breeze, landed in the tall grass and bounced along until equipment caught in a washout. Several persons from a nearby ranch walked to the scene. What they found puzzled them, as they'd never seen anything quite like it before. After considerable discussion, they decided that it was a weather balloon of no great importance. Determining that the balloon could still float, they grabbed the shrouds and led the entire contraption back to the ranch. There, they tied it to a fence post, as the bag swayed gently through the night hours. The following morning, a report of the incident resulted in a flurry of long-distance telephone calls and other activity at the office of the Cheyenne River Agency. Range Supervisor John P. Drisden drove up to the ranch, arriving early in that afternoon. By then, numerous people had come to see the balloon and were gathering around it. This upset the range supervisor, so he assumed jurisdiction and warned those present that spreading information about this unusual occurrence could lead to prosecution for espionage. He then examined the landing site and took nine photographs of the balloon. When a rising wind tore the envelope of the balloon, he collected some of the escaping gas into two borrowed fruit jars. Soon an agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation and several Army security men appeared, and they took custody of the film and the fruit jars. They also made arrangements to keep the story out of the local papers, and loaded the deflating bag in, and gear into a truck. This was one of only several balloon incidents that occurred in South Dakota during the first half of 1945. Ranchers found fragments of envelopes near Buffalo, Kadoka, Marcus, and Wolsey. Authorities also recovered a balloon from the Red Elm vicinity, and a farmhand found a bomb that probably came from a balloon near Madison. Another balloon exploded in the middle of March in broad daylight in the sky north of Custer. Many persons reported the incident, just as others did another balloon sighting a few days later. Appearing over Belle in the early afternoon, a balloon drifted southward at an estimated altitude of 3,000 feet.
1: Catching the late afternoon rays of the sun, the balloon appeared in the sky as a perfect silvery sphere, which could be seen only if the observer was in line with the reflection. At times... It disappeared in the blue haze, and near Piedmont, a squadron of flying fortresses from the local air base passed within a quarter of a mile of it without noticing. The
0: following day, farmers discovered the balloon dangling in a barbed wire fence not far from Chardron, Nebraska. Balloons continued to drift over South Dakota into the summer, and at least one landed and exploded in the state. While the balloons appeared harmless, one South Dakota unknowingly carried a balloon bomb many miles over bumpy back roads in the trunk of his car, and another allowed his children to use the balloon bag as a dollhouse. They could be very deadly. The charge from one was exploded with a dynamite cap by an army intelligence officer at Rapid City, and it tore a hole in the ground three feet deep, with a five foot diameter. Of course this is what the balloons were designed to do, to blow up on American soil, and they were actually military weapons. The following account comes from Scott Heiderprim writing about the balloon that landed in Hand County, South Dakota.
3: Robert Campbell Waring and his wife, Welda Arbogast Waring, played host to an uninvited guest in March of 1945. A strange bamboo contraption fell into the waring Glendales Township pasture that month, and they babysat it for two months before discovering its history or purpose. The existence of balloon bomb warfare was unknown to them, and as a consequence, they had no knowledge of how to react. They regarded the highly explosive device as a child might regard a novelty, but a novelty set to explode on impact. Wrong lugged the huge bomb into the kitchen on his shoulder, plopped it down, and with the assistance of some neighbors, promptly set about reconstructing the odd mechanism. Word quickly spread about the mysterious fallen object in the Waring's possession. Charlie Gardner, the editor of the Miller Gazette, went out to the Waring place to get the scoop. When he was ready to go to press, the FBI stepped in, told him the story could not be printed, and impressed Charlie with the importance of not frightening the populace at that particular time. Charlie sat on the story. Two months after the bomb's arrival, the wearings were still in the dark to its purpose. Finally, they contacted the Attorney General's office and a man came out promptly. He was horrified to see the live Japanese bomb in the home, completely reconstructed and ready to do its duty. He notified the wearings of the object's contents. They were not particularly surprised. Being well-versed in mechanics, they surmised the contraption was some sort of bomb with firing mechanism. A special detail was called from Pier. The bomb was disarmed and shipped off to Pier.
0: This is the same balloon that today can be viewed at the Museum of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Here is the final tally of where balloons and parts of balloons were found in South Dakota as of today. So, February 12, 1945, in Noel Wynn, an unexplained incendiary bomb explosion happened. On March 6th, in Buffalo, shroud lines and several balloon fragments were found. On March 22nd, an intact balloon was found in Rhee Heights On March 26th, as mentioned, fragments were found in Kadoka. On March 30th, a drop apparatus and balloon parts were found in Red Elm. Just a day later, on March 31st, a bomb from a balloon was found in Marcus. On April 13th, a large balloon fragment was found in Wolsey, that's 10 minutes away from where I grew up. I feel attacked now. On March 26th, an unexpected 5-kilogram incendiary bomb was found in Madison. The whole business was very weird and had overtones of science fiction to many of the people involved. In fact, it was not until April 30th of 1945, close to 6 months after the first balloons reached American shores, that the FBI in Sioux Falls confidentially informed law enforcement officers in South Dakota that the balloons were part of, quote,
2: purely military operation and that all jurisdiction had been transferred to the War Department.
0: Back in January of 1945, South Dakota newspaper editors, at the request of the Army and Navy, attended a confidential conference in Denver. There, Brigadier General P.X. English and Colonel Robert W. Reed either wittingly or unwittingly lied to the press in order to justify censorship. At a time when there had been relatively few landings and sightings, the officers stated that vast numbers of balloons had reached the western portions of the United States. Far from admitting the purpose of the balloons remained unknown, they boldly declared that they were, quote,
2: known to be scientific experiments for something infinitely bigger. Against that background, the army men claimed that published reports of specific incidents would get back to Japan by secret radio within a couple of hours. At the conclusion of the briefing, the journalists readily accepted self-imposed censorship, accepting the premise that balloon stories in the Sioux Falls Argus Leader, the Mitchell Daily Republic, and the Rapid City Daily Journal would pose a threat to national security. They agreed to print no information about the balloons, and to attribute any fires or deaths caused by them to an explosion of undetermined origin.
0: However, the wide dissemination of information from other means gradually undermined the censorship arrangements. In May, after a pastor's wife and five children attending a church picnic were killed in an Oregon forest when the balloon bomb they found exploded, The government made the decision to inform the general population in the affected areas about the danger. Governor M. Q. Sharp of South Dakota issued Order No. 19 to all state employees, asking them to publicize the contents of the classified federal document Japanese Balloon Information Bulletin No. 1, which described the balloons, speculated about their purpose, and told how to report incidents to local authorities. The governor suggested that state workers contact and request the help of sheriffs, state's attorneys, county agents, social security employees, American legionaries, veterans of foreign wars, patriotic organizations, boy and Girl Scout troops, and the 4-H clubs. However, he warned that anyone who told the news media about this would be in violation of the Espionage Act.
1: The press and radio have all been contacted and will cooperate in the matter, but it is required that before reading this or the attached bulletin to any meeting, you must request the local press not to mention it and caution the people as above set forth, he asserted. What we wish to do is to spread this information by a word-of-mouth campaign among our people as rapidly as possible and have them cooperate in keeping any of the information from reaching the enemy.
0: Under the circumstances, press censorship appeared increasingly unnecessary. Presumably spies, unlike journalists, could hear the contents of the classified balloon bulletin. Major Charles D. Frenson, Jr., the intelligence officer responsible for the balloon cases in South Dakota, commented in May of 1945 telephone conversation that, quote,
3: Some newspaper men are getting a little more resentful now, and I don't blame them. He supported continued censorship of balloon landings and sightings, contending, It is highly desirable for nothing to get in the papers about them, otherwise it could be known false rumors, and strange things go on.
0: However, higher authorities believed that the time had come to modify the policy. On the 22nd of May, the War Department issued a general press release about the balloon threat, accompanied by a confidential covering memo requesting that the press and radio refrain from reporting on specific incidents. Many editors declined to publish the general account, even though the Japanese propaganda broadcasts reported the contents. In South Dakota, nothing about the balloons appeared in newspapers until after the war. The censorship was in part imposed in order to defend North American forests. In the spring of 1945, representatives of the army and the forest service held meetings to plan a cooperative action. Out of these evolved Operation Firefly, which the US Forest Service incorporated into an official 1945 fire control plan. 300 black paratroopers would receive training as smoke jumpers. This was dangerous and highly skilled occupation and the forest service officials expected Only 200 effective jumpers to complete the course. During the summer, these survivors would literally leap into the fires and try to stem the flames until the arrival of white support troops. The Western Defense Command started Project Sunset, designed to use radar to find the balloons and direct interceptor aircraft to them. The planes were to avoid the use of tracers and to observe no-shoot zones over designated forest areas. The precautions proved unnecessary. Radar operations never spotted a single balloon. Rapid City Army Air Force Base representatives refused to sign a contract to furnish men and materials to fight fires in the Black Hills and Harney National Forests, but the Forest Service went ahead with the plans, assuming that the base would help if fire occurred. A meeting held at Fort Warren, Wyoming on June 13, 1945, had a somewhat more productive results after the bad start. The officers presented claims that training and rotation requirements prevented them from committing vast numbers of soldiers to combat any blazes, let alone those caused by armed balloons. Indeed, they expressed concern about sending troops into wooded areas to possibly perish by booby traps dropped from the balloons." Following a lengthy discussion, the base commander finally agreed to verbally allow the Forest Service to train no more than 25 officers and men in fire suppression to help field up to 500 limited service personnel on 15 minutes' notice to counter those emergencies within 210 miles of Fort Warren. These troops would return to the post at night as a precaution against destroying or looting civilian property. The number of men agreed upon was far short of the thousands needed to battle a major fire, but fortunately in 1945 no serious conflagrations swept South Dakota's woodlands. In the years that followed, they kept being randomly found. Towards the end of 1953, one of the balloon bombs was located and exploded by the army in Edmonton, Alberta. One of the balloon bombs was found in Alaska in 1955, and in the mid-1980s, author and researcher Brett Weber set out to trace as many of these explosive devices down as possible. He found 25 in California, 28 in Washington, 37 in Alaska, and 45 in Oregon. The bombs kept popping up as recently as 2014, when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police received reports of one of them in British Columbia and they used C4 explosives to destroy it. The FBI, the United States Forest Service, and the Department of Agriculture all mobilized to help recover balloons or residual material, which were then sent to Caltech University and the Naval Research Laboratory. The FBI feared that Japan might use balloons to commence a biological attack, although understandable on the American side, Japan never actually considered doing such a thing. To protect America from this strange randomized attacks, the Western Defense Command sent planes to supervise the coast and around 27,000 troops to critical points for firefighting. Still, the most crucial front in the balloon war may have been the media. The Japanese, who had fueled their propaganda machine, published stories of massive fires and high death tolls from the balloon attacks. Most of these stories were fake, or embellished beyond the point of even slightly resembling reality. The Japanese command actually didn't know much about the fate of their balloons until the war ended. Balloon attacks ended on May 1st of 1945. There are two prevalent theories as to why the Japanese cancelled the Fugo project. The first theory holds that Japanese high command were under the impression that none of or few of the balloon bombs were landing in the United States due to a lack of news reports on the subject. The second theory holds that continued American air raids of Japan were beginning to interfere with the manufacture of the balloons and similar disruptions to to the railroads made it even more complicated if not impossible to distribute the materials used to make the balloons. In total, the Japanese Imperial Army launched over 6,000 balloon bombs. Hundreds were seen flying over or were found on the ground in the United States. To this day, only a couple of hundred contraptions have been found, and the majority are actually unaccounted for. Since America silenced the detonations by silencing the media, the true extent of Japan's war balloon raid may never actually be known. (laughs) you enjoyed this episode. If you want to do your own research or dig deeper into the sources that we use for this episode, the full work cited for each episode is available to Patreon supporters of the show. Your donations help me access more books, more research databases, and other resources I couldn't access otherwise, and it helps keep the show growing. Donations are accepted through Venmo, Patreon, or Anchor. If you like the show, you'd be doing me a huge favor if you shared the show on social media, or left a five-star review, or just told a friend about the show. Once again, I hope you all had a great month, and uh, thank you for listening, and we will see you all next time. Thank you, Sue Empire.